It's a really good song to sing before we look to the Bible, because we need the Lord's help desperately in this time. So, if you would, join me in prayer, and let's ask Him to be with us. Our Father in Heaven, we do come to You now and ask, as we do every single Sunday here, that You would be with us now by Your Holy Spirit, that You would show up in this time as we look to Your Word and Minister to us. We pray that you would fill me with your spirit so that I would be helpful to your people. And we pray for all of us as we sit under the preaching of the word that you would work in us so that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are receptive to your truth. And so we come, we ask that you would come and do that work in us now because we want to be different. We want to be changed. We want to love one another more. We want to love you more. We want to trust you more. We want and need hope. And we pray that you would come and give us that through your word, by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, there were several guys uh, along with me that went on a little retreat this week, men's retreat, 2018. We had a good time. It was an encouraging time. A lot of good conversations were had of various sorts, some quite serious, some deep theological, real-life struggles, growth, all of that. And then some of it was just very enjoyable and even maybe silly at times. And that's it's good on occasion. And one of the things that we talked a lot about and, and did a lot of listening to was music. We were playing songs that we all liked and enjoyed from, from various points in our lives growing up, and I remember this song, and this song, and this song, and it was, was a good time. So I, I was talking to the guys this week about um, a couple of songs from my sort of middle school era that, that I think are relevant for even what we're going to consider today. And so when I was in eighth grade, at the end of that school year, we had a formal dance, and of course that's a sort of awkward thing anyway, but there were two songs I think primarily in everybody's minds, it's like we're ready to hear these songs. Like we're pretty geeked up to hear these songs. One was Water Runs Dry by Boys to Men. Amen, somebody. Amen. The other, the other was I'll Be Missing You by Puff Daddy and the Family. And so if many of you, it sounds like, are familiar enough with the second, the second song. That's the one I want to really pick up on for a moment. I'll Be Missing You by Puff Daddy and the Family. The song was written because of another rapper named the Notorious B.I.G., Biggie, as he's known affectionately. He was shot and killed, sadly, at a young age. And so that song is essentially a, a song in tribute and in memory of the Notorious B.I.G. And there's a verse in that song, the second verse, that goes this way, at least a portion of it. It's kind of hard with you not around. But I know you're in heaven, smiling down, watching us as we pray for you. Every day, we pray for you. So my question is that how did Puffy know that Biggie was in heaven? Seriously. Not joking around. How did Puffy know that Biggie was in heaven? How can anyone, how can you know that you will make it to heaven. That's a pressing question. 
It should be on, on your mind and on your heart on the regular if you're thoughtful and if you're wrestling with life in the fallen world that we live in. If you're sitting here today and, and you're not a Christian, I wonder what you think will happen when your life is over, because it will be at some point. Do you think that it will go well for you? If so, how do you know? Or maybe you're sitting here today and by the grace of God you are a Christian. But I would ask you the same question. How do you know that you're going to make it to heaven? Because I, I know this is true for me and I know firsthand that it's true for you. We struggle with sin. Our lives are pretty messy. Often. We wrestle. We battle. Sometimes we feel like we're doing okay and other times if we're honest it's like, yeah, bro, it ain't going well. It's not going well. I'm not loving like I should. I'm not trusting God like I should. I'm Struggling with self-control or anger or whatever. I'm despairing. So how do you know? Where is your confidence? How do you know that on that day you will be counted among the righteous? So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, open them up to Galatians chapter 2. We're going to be dealing with this question today. You may be thinking, hey man, we've talked a lot about justification today. And you're talking about heaven and final salvation. I would contend that they are one and the same. That question of how am I going to make it is very much tethered to how we become Christians in the first place. And so we've been making our way through Paul's letter to the Galatians. This morning we will particularly be considering verses 15 and 16 of Galatians chapter 2. But I'm going to begin reading in verse 11 to give us context. So I hope that you've made your way there. To Galatians chapter 2 and verse 11. I think we'll have the verses on the screen for you if you don't have a Bible. This is the word of God. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Amen. Thanks be to God for His Word. So what I want us to consider first, friends, is Paul's argument, Paul's reasoning in these two verses. One of the things that I love about Scripture and one of the things that I love about the Apostle Paul's writing, and maybe this letter in a unique way, is how his argument, it's very reasonable, it's very logical, underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, guided by the Spirit of God, to write exactly what God would have written. And it is easy for us to track with Him. 
and see what he's doing and what he is contending for. So I want us to consider his argument today. If you put your eyes on verse 15, you see there that he says, we ourselves, talking about in particular in this context, remember he's, he's having a, a public sort of encounter, interaction with Peter, with Cephas. He's just talked about what Peter's been doing. We'll think about that in just a moment. He's saying, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now that verse may confuse you in some ways as to, well, what's Paul saying by that? Remember that he's continuing to speak to Peter and remember the issue at hand. The issue at hand in this whole debate, this whole encounter with Peter in Antioch is about what is required for righteousness. How is a person justified, declared righteous, how is a person declared righteous before God? And so Peter was living like a Gentile. That means that he was not observing the Jewish law, the law of Moses, especially when it came to the ceremonial law, food that he was eating. Is that, that's drawn out particularly in verses 11 through 14. Peter was eating like the Gentiles were eating. Well, why was he doing that? Because he knew, rightly, that his justification, his reconciliation to God, did not come through obedience to the law, but it came through faith in Jesus Christ. But then, some, we presume in the text, we're not told exactly, but it seems reasonable and plausible. People are coming from James, the Apostle James from Jerusalem. They come down to Antioch. Jewish believers, perhaps Jewish believers that still thought it was necessary to keep the law. Certainly, yes, trust Christ, but we're going to keep the, the food laws, the ceremonial laws, the law of Moses in general. And so Peter withdraws. You can look back at verses 11 through 14 of chapter 2 and see that. That Peter withdrew from the Gentiles once these Jerusalem Christians came down. And that's why Paul is rebuking him. He's rebuking Peter because, Peter, you are confusing everyone as to how someone is made right with God. You are making the gospel blurry. You're making it less clear. So Paul rebukes Peter because Peter knows and should live as though his justification comes through faith in Christ and not through the law. His living should be consistent with that truth. Now that doesn't mean not living according to the law or living like a Gentile or having freedom. That does not mean living immorally. I think that should be clear. We're not talking about immoral, like raucous living. We're talking about freedom from the law unto righteousness by faith in Christ. We no longer live by the written code, but by faith in Christ and reliance upon the Holy Spirit. Peter's actions are leading people astray. You can see in verse 14, 13, excuse me, that even Barnabas, Paul's right-hand man, was led astray by Peter's hypocrisy. And so, Paul's concern is that Jewish believers, any of them who had a suspicion, like, hey man, we still need to keep the law. Right? I mean, we still need to keep the law. I mean, we've been, the law has been with us for a long time. And we still need to keep this. Yes, faith in Christ, we need to keep this, don't we? Any Jew that was struggling with that and sees Peter do what Peter did is confirmed in his or her suspicion. Yeah, we need to keep the law. Faith in Jesus plus law, that's what it takes. It's necessary. But then for the Gentile believers who had been preached a gospel, preached, had heard a gospel of Faith in Christ means reconciliation with God. I'm justified by faith in Christ apart from works. They've heard that gospel. 
Well, for those Christians, and they, they're eating with Peter one day, and then these folks from Jerusalem come down and he's gone. The issue there is, well, maybe, maybe faith in Christ really isn't enough. Maybe works really are necessary. Maybe what we've been hearing, maybe we're wrong. Maybe we do need to start living like Jews in order to really be right with God. That's Paul's concern. Therefore, the rebuke. Peter, you are a Jew. This is verse 14. You are a Jew, but you don't live like a Jew because you know where your righteousness comes from. You don't become righteous. You're not counted righteous before God by keeping the Jewish law. So how in the world then can you convey to these Gentile brothers and sisters that they need to live like Jews in order to be Christians, in order to be faithful followers in the Lord Jesus? You know that you don't need to live like a Jew in order to be right with God. So how in the world then can Gentiles be righteous before God by living like a Jew? If you can't do that, and you know you can't do that, how in the world can the Gentiles do that? That's the argument that we considered even three weeks ago now. So in verse 15, Paul continues this conversation. And that's in that context is where he says, we ourselves, and the we would at least mean him and Peter. We are Jews by birth. It could be rendered by nature. It's that same word that's in Ephesians 2.3. By nature, children of wrath. It's the same word. So we're Jews by nature, not Gentile sinners. What Paul is saying is that there is a difference between Gentiles and Jews. We're going to think about what that difference is. There is something in Paul's mind that is holy, even, about Jews that isn't true of Gentiles. And what he means by that holiness is that aspect in which they have been set apart, chosen by God, made distinct. Adopted by God as His unique people. That was true of Jews only and not of Gentiles, not of the nations. God had chosen them, God had set them apart. It's not that Paul is saying that Jews are not sinners. Of course, he would understand that everyone, that's clear in Galatians, it's clear in every other writing of his, it's clear throughout Scripture. Every human, Jew and Gentile alike, is a sinner in need of redemption. But there are real advantages to being a Jew. Gentile sinners, I think, should be understood to be conveying the uncleanness of the Gentiles. If you're familiar much at all with your Old Testament and the law of Moses, there was a, a cleanness through the law, and ceremonial law, through civil law, through moral law. There was a cleanness and through the grace of God, the gracious, gracious provisions of God in the law, there was a cleanness about the Jewish community that was not true of the nations. The Gentiles were unclean. They were ignorant of the Lord. They didn't know Him. He had not revealed Himself to them. They were ignorant of God's law. They didn't know it. They didn't have a guide. They didn't have a standard written like the Jews had in all of its wisdom and even in its detail. They were, to put it simply, the Gentiles were not a part of the Old Covenant by and large. There were some foreigners and sojourners grafted in. True. By and large, vast majority, this is a true statement, that the Gentiles were not part of the Old Covenant. So that's what Paul is saying in verse 15. He's making a distinction. 
between Jew and Gentile. So now he's going to argue, though, in verse 16, sort of from the lesser to the greater. If this is true for Jews, then how much more so for Gentiles? That's going to be the pattern here. You're going to see this. The word that you're going to see over and over again in verse 16, you're going to see it three times, that's rendered justified. That's a, a fine rendering, just to be very clear. What justification means is to be pronounced or declared righteous. Think of it in legal forensic terms, right? A judge would pronounce a person innocent. It's a declaration, a legal one. You are innocent, you are righteous. So that's what we mean when we say this word justified. Declared righteous and thereby reconciled to God. And then the works of the law, you're going to see that phrase come up over and over again in this verse several times. By works of the law, you're going to, I think we should understand, in the context of Galatians, we should understand works of the law to mean the Mosaic law wholesale. All of them. Because in various points in this letter, Paul is going to be talking about ceremonial kinds of laws, circumcision, food laws. But then in other times, he's going to be talking in very general terms about works of the law broadly. So I think that's how we should understand that phrase. So then his argument, you can track with this. Put your eyes on verse 16. He says, Peter, verse 15, he said this, We ourselves are Jews, we're not Gentile sinners. We have some advantages, man. Yet, yet, we know, verse 16, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we, who's that? That's Jews, that's me, Paul, that's Peter, that's Jews. We also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified. That's why we believed in Him, in order to be declared righteous by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. That no one, literally, in the original language, could be rendered something like works by works of the law and then a negative, like no, impossible, all flesh. All flesh. There is no possibility that any flesh, any human being, Jew or Gentile or any kind, can be justified by works of the law. That is a wholesale, broad, sweeping statement that Paul is making. And so his argument is this. If Jews who had the law, if Jews who had the covenants, who had the circumcision, who had the adoption, who had the patriarchy, who had the glory, from whom the Messiah came, the Jews who had all of these graces, if even we, if Paul, we, or if even they, I'm a Gentile, so I'm saying, even if they, those Jews, cannot, capital C, cannot, be justified by works of the law. If they can't, how much more so is that true of Gentiles? That's his argument. Paul is essentially saying, look, if anybody, if anybody in the world can be justified by the law, it's us, it's Jews. But Peter, you know, and so do I, that it's not possible. That's why we've trusted Christ, so that we might be justified by faith. How much more so is that true for Gentile sinners? So if you're familiar with the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and the story of God 
making, beginning to make for himself a people. Calling Abram out of paganism. Choosing him. Adopting him. Making him a son. Promises are made to Abraham. I'm going to make out of you a great nation. I'm going to make out of you a great people. I'm going to give you land. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through your offspring. And then we know from Abraham comes Isaac and Jacob. He has 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel. God delivers in an immediate sense here. Short arc versus you know, short arc of prophecy meaning more immediate fulfillment. There are longer arcs, long-term fulfillment. But short arc, God keeps His promise to Abraham by giving the Jews the promised land. The conquest of Canaan. It's what the book of Joshua is about, primarily. It's the chronicles of that land being given by God to His people. And so if you were to think for just a moment, this is, just helps us track with Paul. And what may very well be in his mind as he's aware of the history of his people. Think about the advantages that the Jews had. Especially once they were given the promised land. Think about how they got the land in the first place. They had been guided through the wilderness by God. Cloud by day. A pillar of cloud by day. A pillar of fire by night. Highly unusual. right? They had been provided food miraculously in a place where they couldn't grow in. He had sustained them. And then, he's going to give them the land. And in spite of their timidity, they're afraid, often, of the people groups that inhabit the land currently, in spite of their fear, in spite of their struggle, in spite of their difficulty in trusting God, God goes before them and lays waste to the enemies that they have. He lays waste to the peoples of Canaan so that his people might have a land that was not theirs. They might live in cities that they didn't build, right? They could drink water out of wells and cisterns that they did not dig, right? I mean, this is Bible. They had all of those advantages. They had the law given to them. They had been told how to live. They had leaders, strong leaders, given to them. Moses, Joshua, then would come others. They had the circumcision. They had all of these things, all of these gracious provisions of God, and yet what happens? Over and over and over again. Epic failure. Epic failure. This is not to slam the Jewish people. This is just to be real about all of us and what we, any of us would have done in that circumstance as fallen sinful people. The point to be made is that in spite of every advantage, the story of the Old Testament is one of the perpetual failure of God's people to be able to keep the law. The perpetual failure of God's people to be able to live as the Lord has told them in spite of every grace He gives. Right? The Old Testament, the story of Israel. I mean, if you think about the fact that right after that conquest of Canaan is chronicled for us in Joshua, what's the very next book of the Bible chronologically? The book of Judges, which is an absolute horror show in terms of morality, in terms of just, I mean, yeah, it's like grade A horror movie, man. Like horrible stuff is going on. 
Everybody's doing what, anarchy almost. Everybody's doing what's right in his own eyes. There was no king in the land in those days, right? It's just bad. Gross immorality all over the place. And that's right after, relatively speaking, that's right after these miraculous things have been done by God. The point again is to be made that that story of God's people makes Jesus Christ obvious by the time He shows up on the scene. Like, it's been screamed at at us as we're reading and we're thinking about history. It's like, man, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, it's screamed out, these people need a Savior. These people need someone who can stand in their place and keep the law. They need someone who can be their righteousness. They need someone who can atone for their sin. Because they can't do it. They cannot do it. The Old Testament requires the presence of Christ in order to save God's people. That's clear. The requirements of the law have always crushed people. People back then and people today. The righteous requirements of God's law crush us. We perpetually fail. We can't do it. And yet, this is the great but, the great and yet. Yet God relentlessly and continually pursues His people. He pursues His people. He saves His people. He adopts His people. He overcomes their rebellion and makes them His. That's the message of the Scriptures. And that's what Paul is is arguing for here. Peter, you know as I know, man. He got every advantage. And we know that we can't be saved by the law. We know that we've got to be saved. If we're going to be saved, it's through faith in Christ. His work, not ours. We know that to be true. Paul's definition of the gospel by the Spirit is very clear. There are no exceptions. Zero. This is one of those Sentences you can read in your Bible, and it's clear to you as it is to me. There is not an exception to this. No one, all flesh, wholesale, no one, will be justified by works of the law. You will not earn it. You can't keep it. It's impossible for us. God has another way of saving. Which brings us to the next piece of of our time together. And so I want us to consider... We just considered Paul's argument. Now I, I want to dig into this a little bit. Okay, Justin, you're, you're helping us see, or, or I see with you, brother, that Paul is arguing and saying that we are justified, we are declared righteous, not by what we do, but completely by faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, well, what does that mean? How does that work? What happens? What does that look like? What did God do? What did Jesus do? What does this mean? Help me unpack that. So that's what I hope to do now. I to think together. I'm just going to give you a list of things. Some of these are going to be what it's not and some of these are going to be what it is. I hope that makes sense. There's going to be some negative and some positive here. The first thing we can say about this, this justification of faith, how are we justified by faith? First of all, bullet point number one, it is not by God infusing righteousness into us. I'm going to explain what I mean. It is not by God 
infusing righteousness into us. In one sense, taking righteousness and just kind of putting it in you so that now you are like inherently righteous. That is not what this is. I don't think I need to unpack that anymore. We're going to go on. I've got a number of these. Second thing we can say about this justification by faith. God justifies us by faith by pardoning our sins. He pardons our sins. This is where we can say with the Scripture that the mercy of Christ is greater than the sin in us. Right? We are pardoned. We are really guilty. So we're going to be thinking about this probably throughout Galatians. I just want to say this. I want to take every opportunity to do it. When we talk about grace, let me tell you what we don't mean. When we say grace, in in dealing with wrong, and talking about wrong, grace does not call wrong right. That's not what grace is. Grace does not overlook wrong. Grace is a way of dealing with real wrong. Own that. Store that away. Because when we talk grace, I I said this this week, and again, oftentimes these things aren't in my manuscript, I trust that's fine. We were talking about this this week on the men's retreat. The problem in churches where there is lawlessness is not an overemphasis of grace. I actually think that's impossible biblically, to overemphasize grace. A problem is a misunderstanding of what grace is. And so when you think in these terms, grace is a way of dealing with real wrong, with real sin. We're going to be just fine. So this happens, we're justified by faith, not by God infusing righteousness into me, like injecting me with righteousness. It is by Him pardoning my sins. Thirdly, it also is by Him counting and accepting us as righteous. This should be clear, I've already kind of talked about this. It's a judicial, legal declaration that God looks at you, though really guilty, and says, righteous. Fourthly, we are justified by faith not for anything God works in us. And by that we could mean a number of things. We are, this does not mean that we are saved by God-wrought righteousness. We are not saved by God-wrought obedience. We are not saved by God-wrought good works. That's not what saves. It will be there. Amen. But it's not what saves. It's not the ground. Next. How are we justified by faith? Not for anything done by us. It's clear. So this is works. In any, I mean, God wrought works, but especially I think here, I want you to think in terms of works done in your own strength. This kind of like white knuckle religion. Right? It's not that. You're not going to just will your way to salvation. It's not how this works. Next, we can say this. How are we justified by faith? We are justified by faith for Christ's sake alone. Solus Christus. For Christ's sake alone. So when we come to this conversation about justification, how are we made right with God? I would want you to think in terms of this. This question is fundamentally about who Jesus is and what He has accomplished. This is about Christ. This is not some theological conversation we're having right now. Those those are fine. But this is about life and death and heaven and hell. And this is about Christ fundamentally. It's about Jesus and what He did. You've got to answer that question. 
When Christ came and He lived and He died and He took His life up again on the third day and He ascended to heaven, He's coming back, all of that, what did He accomplish for His people? That is the root question. So it's for Christ's sake alone. And I think we're going to keep unpacking some of that. How are we justified by faith? Next, it's not this. It's not by counting our faith or any other obedience as our righteousness. So this might be a mind blow. I'm just going to try to parse that out a little bit. It, we are not, being justified by faith does not mean that God counts our faith as righteousness in and of itself. You're not just saved by faith in, like in some ethereal way. What I mean is this, you are saved by the object of your faith. Does that make sense? Right. So it's not that we just have some sort of faith and that faith in and of itself is what justifies. It is the justifier in whom we have faith that justifies. Okay. That matters. Because it's Christ. It's not your faith. Because sometimes we, I think we worship the idea of faith or something. It's just unhelpful. In a number, in both directions. We end up kind of taking credit for strong faith and we end up despairing over weak faith. Right, let's, let's move on. What else can we say about this? If our faith is not our righteousness. Our obedience is not our righteousness. How are we justified by faith? It is this. This is absolutely essential. You've heard me say this a lot. I don't care. Let's say it again. We are justified by faith by God counting Christ's obedience to the whole law and God counting Christ's death to us as our complete and only righteousness by faith. I'm going to say that again. How are we justified by faith? It's by God counting Christ's obedience to the whole law and His death in our place to us as our whole, complete, and only righteousness by faith. Faith is the, the vehicle, the mechanism. But it's the work of Christ. His obedience to the law, His sacrificial death, His triumphant resurrection. It's Christ who has accomplished salvation. And it's faith in Him that saves. So the real question, as I said earlier, that you need to have on your mind when it comes to justification, and this is helpful in talking to other people, is what did Christ do? What did He do? And the answer, in a short way, is He accomplished full atonement. Yes, He did. And He accomplished perfect righteousness. Yes, He did. And it's yours. It's applied to you by faith. The last thing that we can say about, but not exhaustively, but at least on my list today, the last thing that we'll say about this justifying faith. How are we justified by faith? I would be remiss if I didn't say that this faith that we're talking about is the gift of God. God does this in you. It is not of yourself. I think anybody who's sitting here this morning who's trusting the Lord Jesus hears that statement spoken and says, that's right. Of course that's right. I didn't do this. I couldn't have done this. My faith is not my own. My faith has been given to me by the Lord. My faith is a gift of God. It removes boasting. It actually gives me confidence that, hey, if God is the one who gave me the faith in the first place, 
God also is the one who's going to keep me in the faith. So we talk about this sometimes here at CDC, and I think it's good that we do. Like, what, what happens to a person? I say it that way on purpose. What happens to a person when they're converted? I tell you what it isn't. It is not just some epiphany moment that you in and of yourself come to. You don't just wake up one morning and just say, oh, aha, I've got it all figured out today. That's not how it worked. It's not because you are just some inherently more like God-seeking person. Like, oh, I'm just a seeker, baby. I'm a seeker. You know, and that's what's done it or something. That's why I've come to faith and other people haven't because I'm seeking it. It's not why. You know? It's not because you're smarter. I certainly say this is true. It's not because I'm smarter. There are many people smarter than me who have not come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. It's not because I'm less tainted by sin. It's not why. But what does happen? God Almighty shows up when the gospel is proclaimed. We're told about Christ, His life, His death, His resurrection, what He accomplished, what we've been thinking about. We're told about why it's necessary that we're sinners, that we were made in God's image, but our first parents sinned against God and plunged all of us into ruin, and we've been sinning from the moment, from really, but I mean, before we were born, we're born in sin, but then from the time we're born, we, we do nothing really but what we want. We go our own way. Occasionally my own way and God's way might kind of line up so it looks like I'm a decent person. But really at the heart of the matter, I do what I want. And we're told that. It's okay, I'm listening. I hear that. I'm hearing this message about Christ. And maybe I've heard it 73, 73, 74 times before. I don't know. But today there's something different. Today there's something different. Something has happened. I see this and I believe this. It's because God came by His Spirit and gave you life when you were dead. It's because God came supernaturally and gave you eyes to see what you couldn't see before. The scales fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed Thee. That's what happened. Now, all of that reality that is God accomplished, that is, is the work of God, it is supernatural in the new birth, Jesus would say to Nicodemus when he's like warped out of his frame, like, I don't know how to be born again. I can't do that. To which Jesus says, exactly. It's like the wind. It blows where it wishes. You've heard the sound of it, but you don't know where it came from. You don't know where it's going. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Nicodemus, this is above your pay grade, bro. This is the work of God we're talking about here. right? Now all of that, that... Big God, like, I hope just confidence instilling stuff does not for one second mean that you didn't make a real choice to follow Jesus. You did. You did. You decided to follow Christ and you owned that. You're going to make decisions to follow Jesus every day of your life and you're going to have to own that. The question is not, did I make a real choice? Do I make real choices? The question is, why do I make the choices I make? Why did I choose what I chose? Why did I choose Christ? That's the question. And the answer to that, the bottom of that, is God. Grace. Not because of anything in me. Not because of anything certainly that I could accomplish. Am I a Christian? I'm a Christian because of sovereign grace. Because God is merciful. And He... Gave me life when I was dead. He gave me what I could never merit and what I never would deserve. 
That's where it comes from. So we can say all of those things about this saving faith. How are we justified by faith? All of that and more would be included in that answer. But I want us to move on for just a moment here. I, I want to take us toward a conclusion. I want to give just a brief word to those in the room who have tender consciences. If you would understand yourself to have a tender conscience. What I mean by that is that you are maybe in a heightened particular way, very aware of your struggles. You're very aware of your sin. You tend to be a perfectionist. You tend to beat yourself up. You tend to just be discouraged by how your life is going. You're discouraged by your disobedience. You want to follow Christ. You want to obey the Lord. You want to live according to the Word. And you know that you don't do it well. And you're struggling. And you're convicted. And you're burdened. I want to speak to you especially. And I trust the rest can profit as well. People with tender consciences who are very aware of of their hearts, their minds, their, their sin. They're keenly aware of their struggle. And so there's an inner turmoil inside always. Right? There's this constant wrestling inside with, like, am I, am I really good with God? Am I really His child? Like, he, he tells me in His Word that I've been adopted as His child, but I feel like His enemy. I feel like I'm not in right relationship with Him because I know I'm sinning. There's this kind of haunting thought and these haunting feelings just kind of chase you around. And and it's like, I know I'm never going to measure up. I'm never going to measure up. I'm aware in some, not not as much as I should be, but I I think I have some understanding of God's holiness. And it's awesome, like way up here. And I have some understanding of my sin and it's way down here. And I, I just feel like I got no shot. And it's, it's like you, you read passages like Matthew chapter 7 and you read about Jesus, people coming to Christ and saying, hey, you know, calling Him Lord, Lord, look at what we did. It's another sermon for another day. But you read about that passage and Christ looks at them and says, depart from me. I never knew you. And deep down in here, you're just like, I'm afraid that's going to be me. It just weighs you down. I'm going to spend my whole life trying to live for God and I'm going to be damned in the end. Well, you can't escape that. So that's what I'm talking about. It's kind of tender conscience. I know there are many in the room. I, I would count myself among that number. I can say with confidence that if your salvation, if your salvation did depend on your works or your obedience in any fashion, you would be damned in the end. You would face judgment, as would I. But the wonderful news is that Jesus, as we've been considering, He has accomplished. He has accomplished your justification. And if you are justified by faith in Christ, you will be finally saved. If you're justified by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have acknowledged your own sin, you have confessed that. You have, not that you've confessed every sin, but you have acknowledged it. You have owned it. And say, I don't want that. I agree with you, God. I'm a sinner. I need mercy. I need a righteousness that's not mine. I agree with you. I'm turning from my sin. I'm turning from my own notions of my own goodness. And I'm trusting wholly in the Lord Jesus Christ, His work in my place. If that's you, and that's happened, that heart change, you will be finally saved. And you can take heart 
And it's not because you're going to get yourself there. It's because Jesus will not fail. Salvation, in one sense, of course, is a process, right? We understand that. That it starts, in one sense, in eternity past, right? He loved us and He chose us for the foundation of the world, okay? But even in time and space, in our lives, and our experience, it starts somewhere. Justification. I turn from my sin and I trust in Christ. Not that I know what day that was. I don't, I don't know my spiritual birthday. I certainly don't. It's not that. But we know that it starts somewhere. And then there's this thing called sanctification where we're being made more like Christ. We're being made increasingly holy by His Spirit, through the Word, through the sacrament, through the church, the ordinary means. We're changing, not perfectly. It ebbs and flows, but there's a process to that. We get that. And then one day we know we're promised that glorification peace. We'll be raised imperishable. We'll see Jesus as He is. We'll be with God. But friend, your present justification your presence standing before God. You are declared righteous in Christ and it's over. It's over. Right? Nothing will pluck you from His hand. He doesn't lose any of all that the Father gives to Him. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Christ is the one who died. It's done. And when Jesus said it's finished, He meant, yes, the the righteous requirements of law have been fulfilled. The atonement has been made. It's done. My people are as good as saved. Nothing is not fragile. It's not going anywhere. So your justification and and, and my justification is finished because Jesus has seen to that. He's done it. That's why we sing Jesus paid it all. All to Him we owe. Because we don't do this. He did it. And He's working in us by His Spirit. So that, and only that, Jesus, His work, His life, His death, His resurrection in your place, only that is the ground of your assurance and mine. If we're talking in absolute terms. So of course, we can examine our lives and we can be encouraged by the growth we see. Like man, I I used to struggle with this in a mighty way and I still struggle, but maybe not as badly. Then I used to do this to my wife and I was horrible to her and I haven't done that in a while. Praise God. We can look at that and be encouraged and say God must be at work here. Amen. But friend, if we're talking about absolute terms in terms of how can you know? How can you know that you're going to make it to heaven? It would be insane for you to look to growth in your life. It would be insane For you to look to obedience in your life. It would be lunacy if we're talking in those absolute terms. The requirements of perfect righteousness. So by all means, let's look at one another's lives and encourage each other as we see fruit. And as we see growth. But never confuse the issue as to what we're standing on. It's a solid rock. right? His name is Christ. We're dressed in His righteousness alone. Faultless to stand before the throne. I don't know about you. I don't want to be dressed in any of the filthy rags that I would put on myself. I want to be dressed in the righteousness of Christ. And that's where my confidence lies. Because if we're talking about our own obedience and our own growth and our own fruit and all that, the question has to be asked, how much is enough? I'm not going to be able to sleep well at night. I don't know about you. Right? I mean, if I'm thinking to myself, like, whether it's how much I've read my Bible or how my prayer time is going or how much I'm loving other people or how much I'm giving of myself, how I'm loving my wife, my kids, whatever, right? 
How am I doing in evangelism? I mean, we could just go on and on, right? How much is enough? And if you're honest with yourself, you're just like, well, there's no way I could ever do enough. I could always do more. There's no confidence there. It's a shifting kind of moving target. I want for myself and for you that you would be rooted in the rock. This unshakable thing. This immovable thing. This perfect righteousness of Christ that's accomplished for you. And just remember that when you're rejoicing over obedience and fruit and growth, it's great to be encouraged, but don't ever trust in it. Don't trust in it. We trust Christ alone. Amen, somebody. Please, my goodness. We trust Christ alone. It's our only hope. The last thing I want to mention to you very briefly, just sort of the number four, very brief, is that in all of this talk about justification, about Christ, His work, what He's done, I don't want you or I don't want myself, I don't want to lose sight of the goal, the aim, the end. Because I would wager, I would say this, I think this is true. Justification in and of itself really doesn't mean anything if we don't get to be with God forever. If we don't get God forever, perfect relationship with Him, being thrilled and filled by His glory all the time, if we don't get that in perfect fellowship and relationship with each other, if that doesn't come, then justification really doesn't mean very much. So justification in and of itself is kind of whatever. Justification as a means to that, as this immovable cog in that process, that's something remarkable. Justification, being counted righteous, is what assures us that we will get God forever. And because of that, that's why it's a big deal. Because we're promised in Scripture this thing called the, the new heavens and the new earth, right? The new creation. We're promised that God will be our God. He's our God now, but it's going to be different then. We're promised that we'll be His people. We're promised that we will have fellowship with Him that's perfect. It's not tainted. It's not marred. It's not interrupted. We're told that we will see the Lord Jesus as He is. As astonishing as that thought might be. We're promised that God Himself will wipe away every tear from our eye, meaning that He will have ended suffering of every kind. There will be no sin. That's astonishing. We were talking about that this week. I can't conceive of an existence in which there is no sin. In terms of my relationship to God, and my relationship to other people. Mind-blowing. There will be no Satan, the great enemy of the brethren. He's gone. Done. There will be no sorrow, no pain, no struggling, no strife, no discord, no death anymore. And I, I'm thinking like, like this congregation, this group of these dear people or fellow strugglers. I am a fellow struggler with you. And I don't know about you, but my, my heart, it aches for that day. It, I long for that day. I need to know, I need to know that I know that I know that God is going to bring me to that day. Because I have no hope I'm going to get myself there. 
And that's why we rejoice over these kinds of promises in God's Word. It's a wonderful thing to think that struggle will not be my day-to-day forever. Fighting for joy won't have to do that anymore. Right? Even, heard it said this week, there will be no self-denial in heaven. Right? That's true. (coughs) Praise God that's true. And all of that, as wonderful as that is, and that's like the hope that we cling to in the darkest of our days, all of that, like bank on it for sure, all of that is ours through faith in Christ. Apart from works, faith alone in Christ alone, by the grace of God alone, to the glory of God alone. Jesus has accomplished that for you and me. Praise Him that He has. Thanks be to God for Him. To Him be glory and honor and blessing and worship forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we give You praise and thanks that You are the God of the Gospel, that You are the God who saves, that You give us these promises that Give us rock to stand on. We thank You for sending Your Son. Lord Jesus, we praise You and we thank You for what You have done in our place. You are our righteousness. You are our hope. You are our confidence. You are our atonement. And we trust in You and we pray that we would all the more even today. We pray for every person in this room that we would trust in the Lord Jesus. Father, we pray for our church that you would continue to grow us, that you would continue to change us individually and as a body. We pray that you would rally us and thrill us with this gospel and with this Jesus who has done this for us. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.